Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. And this will be our last message in Luke 4, although it will not be the last of the series. We are going to do one more next week, Lord willing. Someone once said, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Another said, some persons are like hens, which no sooner drop their eggs and they begin to cluck. William Barclay said, pride is the ground in which all other sins grow. Another has said, I will not say a good man is never proud, but I will say a proud man is never good. Another has said, none are so empty as those who are full of themselves. Another person said, a man wrapped up in himself makes a pretty small package. Did you notice how we shook that bridge? The flea said to the elephant as he was riding on his back after crossing the bridge. (laughs) Thomas Watson said, you that do set up your shield and blaze your coat of arms, behold your pedigree. You are but walking ashes. And you will be proud. What is Adam? The son of dust. And what is dust? The son of nothing. I think we all know that pride is the mother of all sins. And I think we all recognize that it is one of those sins that seems to feed all other sins. A lot of times when you look at sins, you may see them, but when you get down to the root of the issue, the fuel that makes them burn is often pride. And it is this very sin, the sin of pride, that Satan is going to try to tempt Jesus to commit in the text before us this morning. We have learned that Jesus is at the start of his ministry. He has been baptized by John the Baptist. He has had the Holy Spirit anoint him, a voice has proclaimed out of heaven, you are my beloved son, then the Holy Spirit has led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tested by the Father, so that he might be a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, so that when we are tempted, we can go to him and we will know that he knows what it's like to be tempted because he is tempted in a far greater way than we ever will be, yet without sin. And during Jesus' time in the wilderness, he has fasted for 40 days and completed his time of fasting. At this time, he is starving to death. He is very weak, he is very tired, and this is when Satan comes to him. Now that he can eat, now that his time of special focus on God is ended, Satan comes to him. And the first thing he says is, see this stone here? Why don't you just turn that into a nice, soft, chewy chunk of hot bread? And Jesus knows that he has the right to eat. But he is not going to doubt the word of God. He is not going to fall into the trap of trying to prove that he is the son of God by turning a stone into a loaf of bread. He is going to humbly wait on God's provision for him as he knows he must. And he is not going to use his divine powers to meet his personal needs. And so Jesus, though very hungry, fends off the temptation by reminding himself and telling Satan that, listen, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in saying that, Jesus affirms the extreme importance of obeying God even to the point of death. Satan then realizes that appealing to the lust of the flesh in Jesus isn't working. Even though Jesus is on the verge of starving to death, he can't get him to feed his flesh. And so then he takes a different tactic. Now he goes after the lust of the eyes. And in a moment of time, he takes him to all the major kingdoms of the world. He shows him all of their glory, all of their riches, all of their luxury and banquets. 
And Jesus, weak, tired, starving, sees all of this, and I'm sure it was very appealing to him. And Satan says, listen, it's it's yours. I'm going to give it to you if you just bow down and worship me. Of course, Jesus could not do this and would not do this. And for the second time, Jesus quotes the word of God. And he says, it is written the formal statement. This is what God says. You shall worship and serve God only. And we noted something very interesting about these temptations, especially these first two. Both times Jesus is tempted in areas where he has freedoms. Areas that he has some permission in certain contexts to do certain things. Jesus had the right to eat, didn't he? Jesus had the right to rule all the kingdoms of the world, didn't he? He's going to rule all the kingdoms of the world. And he did end up eating right after that. But in both temptations, Jesus is presented with something that is fine with the father in certain contexts at certain times. And yet he's tempted just outside of that time and just outside of those contexts. He wants him to acquire these things just outside of the means that God has prescribed. And these kinds of temptations are always the most subtle and deceptive ones. Where Satan comes in areas where you have some freedoms in certain contexts. It's not like, you know, go chop off so-and-so's head. That, that's a no-brainer. It's when God says, yes, you can do that. Or this or the other thing. In certain contexts, at certain times, then he tries to confuse us. Into doing what we think maybe is the will of God, but yet contrary to the word of God. So now we come to Luke chapter 4, where we see the same thing again. And we look at verses 9 through 13. Look there and follow along as I read. The text says, And he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And the devil had finished every temptation. He left him until an opportune time. So Satan has tried tempting Jesus with the lust of the flesh. It didn't work. Tried tempting him with the lust of the eyes. Didn't work. So now he's going after the boastful pride of life. And from these verses, we will learn three ways Satan will try to get you to be prideful, to use your pride against you, and when he will attack. First, he will tempt you to place yourself over God in judgment. Look at verse 9. Luke goes on to say here in verse 9, And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now just stop there for a moment. The pinnacle temple really means the extremity of the temple. That is the high place of the temple. And he's not talking about the very temple itself, but the whole temple mount and all of its structures. Most commentators believe this is the southwest or southeast corner of the Temple Mount. It was at that place that the Kidron Valley was at its lowest. And so the wall of the temple was the highest in that place. As a matter of fact, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, said that it was a dizzying height of some 400 feet. Now, I don't know about you, but if you go out and you see one of those big telephone poles, that's about 60 feet. You stack multiple telephone poles on top of each other. That is a long way up there. And since the Kidron Valley was so low in the southeast corner, they had to build up a lot of stones just to even begin to get it to grade. Then on top of that, they built this huge structure and they believed there was some sort of little parapet, some sort of little you know lookout point or proclamation point or some little place up there where you could actually stand at the very height, the highest point of the Temple Mount called the Pinnacle of the Temple. 
We know about this place because of the early church fathers and what they said about James the lesser or James the just, the half brother of Christ. Supposedly, according to tradition, James was a man of just impeccable character and integrity. He was so honest and so noble that his reputation went before him. And supposedly there were many Jews who were repenting of their sins and giving their life to Jesus as the Messiah. The Pharisees, of course, were very bothered about this. And so they came to James and they said, listen, we know that you tell the truth. We want you to get up there, stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and we want you to tell everybody that Jesus is not the Messiah. Tell them the truth. So James took that opportunity to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and he proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and Messiah. Of course, the Jews were angry. They were so infuriated that they pushed him off the pinnacle. He fell mortally wounded in his last moments. A man who was a fuller, that is a wanderer by profession, took a club and beat out his brains and he was buried on the spot. And so is the end of James. And so the pinnacle of the temple was the perfect place to make a public announcement. It was a perfect place because not only could everybody see you from the temple mount, everybody could see you from the south side of the temple mount and the east side of the temple mount. And it was a very religious place to boot. And so it was just a perfect place to get up there and make an incredible statement or do something that people would notice and watch. Now look at the last half of verse 9. It says, Satan, and Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, now stop here. Notice Satan uses the same tactic, doesn't he? Same as the first temptation. If you are the Son of God, which implies something. It implies what? That God's word isn't true. God says, you are my beloved son. Satan comes on the scene saying, if you are the son of God. He's always trying to cast doubt and to twist the truth and to make people doubt the reliability of the word of God. God said Jesus was his beloved son. And now he's saying, we'll know God's word is true if you prove it. If you prove it. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. People always want to have things proven to them. And what's interesting is Satan is so in tune with the Jewish culture of Jesus's time that he knows that Jews in general lust after signs. They love miracles. They love signs and they love wonders and they can't wait for the Messiah to come back because they know the scriptures and they can't wait for him to come back because they know he's going to do a lot of miracles. And so they're just waiting. We see this, for instance, in Matthew 12, 38 and 39. I don't know if you remember the text when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet none will be given it but the sign of Jonah. They crave for a sign. They long for a sign. Oh, they wanted a sign, a miracle. Could you just give us a miracle? Paul tells us that the Jews had this problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 24. And in chapters 1 and 2, towards that last half of 1, and in chapter 2, Paul explains his methodology for doing evangelism. How he came to cities, and he didn't try and wow them with fancy talk or worldly wisdom or get in debates with them. All he did is proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. But this is what he said about his proclamation In some places, for indeed, Jews ask for what? Signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. Why? Because they were looking for signs. They were looking for miracles. They were looking for a man to show up in the scenes and, you know, waste Rome and put them into glory and do all kinds of fun stuff. Things promised in the Old Testament. And Satan knows that he has been successful in tempting the Jews to doubt the word of God by longing for a miracle, a sign. And that's what he's trying here to do with Jesus. Now, what's interesting is Jesus 
is going to be doing miracles constantly, isn't he? I mean, right after this, Jesus goes out and he starts doing what? Miracles. And he goes around doing healing and raising people from the dead and multiplying fish and loaves and doing all sorts of miracles. But now's not the time. Remember, always just outside of God's timing, just outside of God's means. That's where Satan likes to tempt us. But the point here, which is a very important point, is this. Miracles do not produce saving faith. Ever. Faith, saving faith, is a gift from God. Miracles are pointers. They're signs. Miracles just say, look, there's a prophet. Look, there's the Messiah. Look, God did something here. That's all. But miracles never produce saving faith. You can read in the Gospels where it says some people believed because of Jesus, and then those people left him. Think about the people in the wilderness. You know, the people who got to see all the plagues. Those are some pretty incredible miracles. You know, turning out the sun for a couple days. Turning the Nile into blood and big hailstones and lots of frogs and gnats and boils and all those different things. Those were incredible miracles, right? And then they went and they went through the Red Sea, right? That was a good miracle. Then they were fed for 40 years with manna from heaven. That's a a sustained miracle. Every day they got to see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night. So they had a little shade during the day, a little, you know, street lamp at night for the camp. And they had all of these miracles. And yet, what does the author of Hebrews say in chapter 3? I think it's about verse 17, 18, 19. It says, they all died in the wilderness because of unbelief miracles didn't save any of them and they had them every single day they all dropped dead you know the story of the rich man and lazarus the luke 16 rich man dies he's in torment and hell He realizes his desperate situation so he calls out to abraham whom he can see across this chasm that no one can cross And there is Lazarus who had misery in the first part of his life here on earth. And he says, Father Abraham, send somebody back to the dead. Send me back from the dead so my brothers will be warned. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then in desperation and in anxiety, he starts arguing with Abraham and he says, no, Father Abraham, if somebody rises from the dead, if you send me back to them and they see me in my resurrected state, knowing I have died, then they will repent and believe. And Abraham says, no, no, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. Point being, if people won't believe the word of God, they won't believe. The word of God doesn't need to be proven. Why? Because it's the word of God. That's why. Does God need to prove that God is God? No. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. God never makes an error. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. He cannot break his promise. And when he utters a word, the only thing that can come out of his mouth is perfection. That's why the scriptures say the the word of God is like silver tried in the furnace seven times. That the sum of God's word is truth and every one of his righteous ordinances is everlasting. And that the grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. It never fails. And so when God speaks, you just believe it. You just believe it. And yet when God is gracious, when he does give us his word, the first thing that ungrateful, sinful men often ask is, well, how do I know? How can I be sure that God's telling me the truth? How can I be sure the Bible is reliable? And people, this is the sin of pride. Pride will cause you to set yourself up and over God in judgment of him. 
You take the ever-present almighty God and you reduce him into the defendant and you become the judge and you look down on God and you say, you know, I don't know if you're telling me the truth. I don't know if I can trust you. That's what you're doing when you doubt the word of God. And pride will tempt you to put God on trial instead of seeing yourself on trial. Pride will cause you to judge God in your mind instead of realizing he's going to judge you. He is the one who judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen very carefully. Every one of us in this room. Everyone in Burbank, everyone in California, everybody in the United States and the world will be thoroughly convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't have to worry about it. God will convince everybody. The scriptures tell us it is appointed for men to die once. And after that comes the judgment, the trial. And I have news for you. You won't be on the throne. Neither will any of the atheists or agnostics or philosophers of the world or the very religious important people. It'll be Jesus Christ and his eyes will be like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. He will be radiant with glory and all of us will be face down eating dust with reverence and awe. And we'll all be convinced. See, what God is looking for is not the opportunity to convince you he's looking for you to have faith in him. He wants you to have faith in this life without seeing him. That's what he wants. Faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. That's what he wants from you. That's what he demands of you because he is God. God expects us to trust his word implicitly without any doubting whatsoever. The second thing implied in the text is that Jesus is answerable to Satan. And we saw this, right? Not only is, is Satan here trying to present to Jesus this false notion that somehow he needs to verify God and put himself in judgment over God. But Satan, it's amazing in this text, has taken this position of lordship over Christ. And we saw this before. That somehow Jesus is answerable to Satan. And he's not. All of a sudden, Satan is telling Jesus what to do. Do this, do that, do this other thing, do this thing here, and I will give you this. And, and he's trying to just step into a place of lordship over Christ. And listen. Satan is not Jesus' Lord. And if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, he's not your Lord either. And he will come to you and he will try to convince you that you need to do what he says. You just ignore him. You don't have to. He's no longer your master. You have a new master. When you are tempted by Satan, it is always an appeal to make him Lord of your life rather than Christ. And last week we discovered that every sin at its root is the sin of idolatry, isn't it? Because every time you sin, you say no to God and yes to Satan or self or someone else. You always dethrone God and say, you know, Lord, I don't think you know what's best in this situation. And so I am going to set you aside and I'm going to do what my flesh says or what so-and-so says or what Satan says or whatever. And that's why sin is as iniquity and idolatry. And Satan wants to take over the throne of your life, but don't let him. And why would he do this? Pride. Pride. He's prideful and he wants you to be prideful. So the first lesson we learned from this is Satan will tempt you to pride, to place yourself in judgment over God, to mentally think that you are over God, that God's accountable to you and that he has to jump through your hoops so you can be maybe convinced that he is God and do what he says. Secondly, Satan will tempt you to seek self and the attention of others. Look again at verse nine towards the end. He says, if you are the son of God, 
throw yourself down from here. That is from the pinnacle of the temple. Now notice that Satan again is looking for Jesus to do a miracle. If you are the son of God, prove it and prove it by pitching yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. But unlike the temptation to turn the stone into the loaf of bread to satisfy his physical needs. This one here has a whole different motive and a whole different purpose. Still, it's again, it's a miracle to prove the word of God is true, but the whole motive is different. Jesus would be in a perfect place to show people that he was indeed the Messiah long awaited for. Now now think about, think about how reasonable this might seem. Is Jesus the son of God? Sure. Is he the Messiah? Sure. Does God want everybody to know he's the Messiah? Sure. Well, then listen, Satan says, if you are the son of God, surely the father would want everyone to know who you are. So prove it. Do a miracle right here in front of all these people in the Temple Mount, worshiping all these people coming to the Temple Mount, all the people in the Kidron Valley. Just leap off of there and force God to save you and everybody will instantly understand you are the Messiah. You'll get the fame. You'll get the attention. You'll get the notoriety you deserve. And that's what he's trying to get him to do. But what's amazing here is this. Satan has him up on the pinnacle of the temple, but he can't push him off. He can't push him off. Notice the text says that he can only suggest that Jesus throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Satan couldn't even give him a shove. And you know what? He can't shove you either. Satan can only appeal to you. And you know what? No one else can make you sin either. They can't do it. The devil's never made you do it. Your wife, your husband, your enemy, your mother-in-law, that next door neighbor with the yapping dog, the guy who cut you off on the freeway. They've never made you sin. No one has. No one can push you. Listen, when I used to go fly fishing, I used to see trout rising in the river. And you know what? I would put a fly on. I would cast out to them. I would present the bait, but I never made them bite. I only presented the fly. And you know, and even if I tried to go out there and grab the fish and hook them in the lip, it would never happen. They'd swim away. Well, listen, God has made it so Satan cannot push you. The evil one cannot touch you. You have to do it. He just says, jump. And then you have to do it. And Satan tempts us all this way. Do you ever get tempted to have recognition? You know, you did something pretty cool. You know, you've been serving in Sunday school quite a long time. And you folded those bulletins. I did this display. You know what I did this week? You tempt to get recognition, affirmation, attention, honor for what you have done for shaking the bridge. Like the flea on the elephant's back. Of course, the opposite of pride is humility. And we don't have time to go into this in this lesson. But just say this. Your life is not about you. Your goals should not be about you. What you want is not what this life is about. What you think is not what this life is about. What you think your rights are, aren't what this life is about. It's about God's glory. It's about God's glory. Do your feelings give glory to God? Do your goals give glory to God? Do what you want to give glory to God? Are you preoccupied with what God deserves and what God wants in this age and in your life? Satan will tempt you to think of self. God commands you to think of him and his glory. They're always diametrically opposed. For a while there, there were those little bracelets. And, you know, if you have one, you can just cover it up. But um, there's the, the what would Jesus do bracelet? You know, 
WWJD. Now they aren't that bad. And they were a little gimmick that uh, started out and they became real popular. And pretty soon everybody had a WWJD bracelet. And the whole point was you wear your WWJD bracelet. And every place you go, when you start doing something, you remind yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then when you look at that, then you try to do what Jesus would do. But really, the bracelet should read H-C-Y-G-G-T-G. But see, that's not very good, isn't it? How can you give glory to God is what the bracelet should be. Because what did Jesus always do? He gave glory to God. That's what we're here for, to give glory to God. What does 1 Corinthians 10, 31 said? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's what we're here. H-C-Y-G-G-T-G. But I ask you this, what is it going to be in your life? Are you going to put the spotlight on God in your life or on you? Is the priority of your life going to be God or you? Are you living for God right now or you? And if your answer is you, then you're in the grip of pride. And the cure is to remind yourself that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price and you are no longer your own. That means you can't do what you want to do. You have to do what God says who bought you. Remember that if you are successful, if you are wealthy, if you are talented and smart and beautiful, if you are saved, it's all because of your ingenuity. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I have barely heard it earlier? Because of you? No, it's because of who? God. God gave you all of that. He gave you your looks and your talents and your position and your place and the ability to make wealth. You are less significant than a flea on an elephant's back. Do you remember how Paul rebuked the Corinthians? The Corinthians started getting a little puffed up. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm Mr. Joe teacher and I've got this gift and I'm doing this thing. And in first Corinthians four, seven, Paul rebukes them saying, for who regards you as superior? And the implied answer is not God. What do you have that you did not receive? And the implied answer is nothing. And then he goes on to say, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Implied You think you actually have what you have because of what you did? Get real. It's God. He gave you everything. The lesson to learn is this. Satan will tempt you. Satan will tempt you to pride and that he will tempt you to judge God and he will tempt you to seek self and the attention from others instead of giving the glory to God and just don't go there. The third thing Satan will tempt you to do is justify your pride with the word of God. Now, this is an interesting one. Look at verse 10. Satan suggests that Jesus throw himself off the temple. Now, notice what he does to try and persuade Jesus to do. How he does this. Notice this. The first words out of his mouth, verse 10, is what? For it is written. For it is written? Yeah, for it is written. Now that is interesting. Because that's exactly what Jesus said in verse 4. It is written. And you know what? That's the same thing Jesus said in verse 8. It is written. You see, Satan tries to tempt Jesus the first two times, and Jesus comes back with gegraptai. This is what the word of God says. And so Satan goes, oh, oh, okay, okay, all right. And, and th- this is how crafty he is. He says, okay, you, you like the word of God. You think, you know, you respect the word of God. You want to do what the word of God says. So let me give you this. It is written. And he puts it right back in Jesus' face. Let, let me just show you. It is written. And then he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, that on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And you know what? Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, 
that text does promise God's protection for those who know and love him. And let me ask you this. Did Jesus know God? He was God. Did he love God? Sure. Does the promise of Psalm 91, 11, 12 apply to Jesus? Of course it does. Jesus then could confidently trust that God's word and God's promise in Psalm 91 about protection applied to him. There's no problem there. You ask, so what's the big deal? He has the right to protection. So jump. He was the Messiah. And later Jesus is going to approve his identity anyways. John's disciples are going to come to him and say, are you the Messiah? And he's going to go, yeah, guess what I've been doing? And he's going to tell him all his miracles. So what's the big deal? Because it's not the time. It's not the way that God wants it done. There would be times in the future, but that time is not now. And we have seen this before, haven't we? Satan tempts Jesus in an area where he has rights, but just outside of God's timing and outside of God's means. Oh, he is subtle that way. When you know God's word promises something or allows something, you are more apt to drop your guard and get confused into thinking that the activity that you are now engaging in is acceptable because you know that the Bible says it's okay. Doesn't it? Secondly, Satan asks is asking Jesus to presume upon the grace of God promised in his word. And that's pride, too. There is a great difference between knowing God's protection and forcing God to protect you, isn't there? There is one thing for God to protect you from someone else's attack and quite another thing to force God to protect you by throwing yourself into harm's way. Notice that Jesus fends off the first two temptations with Scripture. So Satan realizes, ooh. He's doing the scripture thing. I'll try it back on him. And so he adapts. And this is something else you need to learn from the text. If Satan tempts you and you are successful in warding off his temptation, don't think he's going to go away. He's going to try something different, isn't he? He adapts. He's, He's looking for the chink in your armor and he's not going to give up. He adapts. He's like the flu virus. You know, every year you got to get a different flu shot because it's adapted. And he knows that Jesus is confident in Scripture, so he's going to try and use Scripture. And he will do the same thing to you, too. He is the master Scripture twister. Satan loves to just tell people partial truths, half-truths, truths taken out of context, which are really lies. And you know what? If you look at the history of the world, you will discover that some of the greatest atrocities ever committed have been committed by people who thought they were obeying the Bible, but were not. Who believed in half-truths. Who were very sincere in their faith in half-truths. God is a God of love. Is that true? Of course it is. Ever heard that one? So, since God is a God of love, you can do anything you want. That's the wrong part. Does the Bible say that God is a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, a God of grace, and a God of compassion? Of course. So, why not sin any way you want? Do anything you want. Hey, you're forgiven? You're free in Christ? You can't lose your salvation? God's atonement is perfect in Christ? I mean, hey, enjoy some sin. Wrong. You ever heard this one? This is This one kills me. Makes you want to preach on it, so I am. You're talking to somebody about their sin. First thing out of their mouth is, judge not lest you be judged. You ever heard that one? I have. I've heard it zillions of times. Oh, really? I said, then what? And they look at me and say, what do you mean? Well, where is that verse? Well, I don't know. So you just quoted it to me out of context? You don't know what the verse goes on to say? No, well, let me tell you. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. He says, first, take the log that is in your own eye, out of your eye, 
so that you can see clearly to take the speck. And what is that? Judge your brother. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying don't be a hypocrite when you judge. Listen, if you're living in sin, you don't go to somebody else and say, hey, you're living in sin and pretend like you aren't. That's having a log in your eye. So even in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and following, where that verse comes from, even in, even in that passage, if you look in the context, this is what you will see. Jesus is condoning judging, but not hypocritical judgment. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 had to rebuke the Corinthians who fell victim to the same half-truth. Oh, judge not. Oh, you know what? We've got a guy here, and I know he's committing incest with, you know, his his stepmother, but... We are a loving group and we are, we are patient. We are tolerant. We are, we would never judge because Matthew seven, one says judge, not lest you be judged. And so Paul comes to him and goes, what, what are you doing? And then he says, are we not to judge those within the church? And the implied answer is absolutely. And you see somebody who comes to you, you see them in sin, you go to talk to them, and they say, judge not, lest you be said. This is what they're asking you to do. Please sin right now, and don't judge me. The word of God commands you to judge those within the church. Get it. We could never do church discipline if we didn't judge those within the church. We can never use discernment if we don't judge those in the church. The Bible says to, for Christians to examine everything, that is judge everything and hold on to that which is good. Don't go for that half truth. That's just an excuse for people to get you off their back so they won't have to deal with their sin. And those are the kind of things that Satan will bring over and over again. But notice how Jesus deals with this temptation. Look at verse 12. And Jesus answered and said to him. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't use this formula. Gegraptai. It is written. He just says he just uses the normal. It is said the normal word for someone says something. He goes, everybody knows what's said. You shall not put the Lord your God to test. And again, he quotes the scriptures, Deuteronomy six. Jesus knew what Satan was doing. Satan was tempting Jesus to be prideful, to doubt the word of God, to force God to do a miracle on his behalf so he could get some attention, attract a display and damn all of us to hell in the process because he would no longer be a perfect and holy sacrifice. And Satan will tempt you in just the same way. The Bible says God will protect you, right? I mean, if that applies to Jesus, then it applies to everybody who knows and loves God. And if that's you, then it applies to you, right? So why don't you go parachuting without a parachute? Why don't you go bungee jumping without a bungee cord? Why don't you go scuba diving without oxygen? Hey, God's going to protect you. You're God's child. Prove you are God's child. Force God to do a miracle on your behalf. Jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Get the media there. Let them see you. And you know what will happen then? Everybody will see God deliver you because that promise right there in the word of God. And then they'll all see him deliver you miraculously. And then they'll all know that God exists. They'll all know that he is your God. And then you'll have a great platform to share the gospel. Listen, if you jumped off a cliff, you know what would happen? The same thing that happens to Wild E. Coyote, super genius. You would fall at 32 feet per second per second. You would reach terminal velocity and your mass would collide with the mass of the earth. And that would be the end of you. You would lose. And you know what? God would watch it. And instantly you'd be in the presence of Jesus standing there with kind of a sheepish grin on your face. And he would look at you and say, were you trying to force me to do something? That's what pride does. It forgets who's God and who's not. Now, there are times when we can put the Lord to test when he commands us to put him to test. For instance, in Malachi, 
You remember the story of Malachi. Malachi was one of the last prophets. He was the last prophet. After the exile, the people had come back from Babylon. They were living there in the land. And what happened is they received all this wealth, all this riches to rebuild the walls in the temple. And what did they do with those riches? They spent them on their own houses. They took what was God and they spent it on their own houses. They weren't giving to the Lord. And when they did give to the Lord, they were bringing all of these mangy, flea-ridden, three-legged, one-eyed creatures. These misfits of the herd. And Malachi said, you aren't even brave enough to give one of those to your governor. They were kind of using the time of sacrifice as the time to get rid of all those diseased animals that might infect their herd. And God, had, man, he had had it up to them because they were living in luxury. They had done everything, spent all the wealth that God gave them on themselves. They weren't giving. And so God says this in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that it may be, there may be food in my house and test me now in this. See, that's a command. You test me in this and see if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God doesn't want us to put him to the test according to Deuteronomy 616, but when he commands us to, we do it. We do it. But what would motivate, motivate anybody to test God? It's pride. God needs to do a miracle for you. I mean, if you are his special child, surely this is not a big thing. I mean, he's not short on power. Why not do it? Make him do it. Make him heal your aunt so-and-so. Make him answer your prayer. Make him do this. If God, you know, it's like Gideon. Now, listen, I want the fleece. I want the ground wet and the fleece dry. No, no, wait a second. That I, Okay, you did that, right? Here. Now, I will believe you if you can make the, the, the fleece wet and the ground dry. See, that is, that is pride. That is doubting the word of God. Hezekiah did the same thing. You know, Lord, I, I could believe you if maybe the shadow went backwards on the steps. Isn't that exactly what we saw? What happened to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, the angel shows, tells him all these incredible things. And he goes, I'd like to believe this. I'd like to believe the word of God. But uh, could you do a little miracle? I'm here, aren't I? That's pride. God wants to be wants us to be so confident in his word that we believe it, even though we think his promises are impossible, even though we can't imagine how they might come to pass. He is still able to do it. He will do it. And his word will never fail because he's God. Again, we learn by Jesus's example that the way to deal with temptation is recall to mind the word of God, right? He just recalls it to mind. Hey, listen. You can't put the Lord your God to test. It said, it's it. And in that little quote of scripture, he just puts to death the temptation. You have to learn that. You know, if you are tempted to steal something as short as thou shalt not steal is good enough. If you're tempted to lie a little fragment of scripture, thou shalt not bear false witness is good enough. If you're tempted to be an unloving, ungracious, tyrant, selfish husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church is enough. If you're wanting to be the contentious, nagging, vexing woman, and you're tempted to be that way, listen, be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord is enough. You don't need to know huge chunks of scripture. You just need to call to mind what you know is already true. When the temptation comes, you listen to the word of God that hopefully you have in your own heart. And I know if you've been here very long, you have enough to keep you going for the rest of your life. So when temptation comes with all of its pomp and pleasure and possessions and fame and the desire to puff you up with pride and to put God in judgment and think that God owes you a miracle... The only way to deal with it is to quote the word of God and believe the word of God so you won't get dashed upon the rocks of sin and temptation. Fourth, what time is this going to come? Verse 13, and when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And the point is this, what is the opportune time for you? 
You know what it is probably. Maybe it's when you're home alone watching TV. Maybe it's when you're on the computer surfing the Internet. Maybe it's when you're at work at lunch break. Maybe it's when you're driving down that one portion of the road or maybe who knows. We all have our vulnerabilities and there's an opportune time that Satan knows he can tempt you and he will take that opportunity to tempt you. He wants to see you fall. And we have already learned that many of those times come in different ways. We have learned that you are vulnerable to temptation when you are isolated, when you're tired and hungry and weak, when you are continually exposed to temptation, when you are idle, bored, when you don't have anything to do, when you are young, when you are naive, when you are in the wrong place, when you are there at the wrong time, when you fail to flee from temptation, when you listen to ungodly speech, when you hang around bad company, when you touch what is forbidden, when you taste what is forbidden, when you trust in a mere profession of faith, when you are offered material possessions and wealth, when you are offered pleasure, when you have a false sense of security, when you fail to think about God, God and his word and when you fail to pray and when you fail to consider the consequences of your sin. And those are just some of them. And I know that every single one of us knows that we are vulnerable in certain areas. You just can't go there because Satan is a roaring lion and he is waiting to ambush you at the opportune time. And he will take the opportunity if you present it to him. Now, some of you may be out there thinking, Jack, I'm being devoured by Satan already. I've got sins in my life and, and I know they're in my life and I know I'm entangled and I know that, I know that this is not God's will and I want to get free from what do I do? Will you come back next week? And Lord willing, we will look at some scriptures and we will study how you can kill your beloved sin. The sin that you really love. The sin that you've nurtured for a long time. How you can kill that sin. In the meantime, don't be prideful and judge God. Don't be prideful and seek self and the attention of others. Don't be deceived into justifying your pride with the scriptures. And beware, because Satan is looking for an opportune time in your life to tempt you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for what we've learned studying the temptation of Jesus. And Father, I know that there are many people here who are struggling with many different sins. I'm sure that all of your children are. There may be people here who don't realize that they're in sin, like the rich young ruler who thought he had kept all your commandments from his youth. He was clueless that he was even in rebellion against you. Father, if there is somebody here right now and fits that category, I pray that you would grant them repentance that you would remind them that they need Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, that they would repent of their sins and turn to you in faith, that they would receive forgiveness not based off of their own merits, but based off of the blood of Christ shed on the cross on their behalf, and that in doing that they would receive new life just as you rose from the dead. Father, I pray that all of us would leave here on guard, aware, warned, That temptation will come at just the right opportunity because Satan wants to see us judge you, to be prideful against you. Father, to not give you glory and to submit to him as Lord instead of you. Help us not fall to temptation. Deliver us from evil and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.